welcome to the Queer History Podcast. I'm Dakota. I'm Dylan. And today we're talking about Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker was an African-American expatriate who moved to France to escape racism in the United States. Aside from entertaining, she was also a World War II spy and a staunch advocate for civil rights. Josephine Baker was born in 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri. She was born with the name Frida Josephine MacDonald, but was nicknamed Tumpy. Her mother, Carrie MacDonald, was the adopted child of former slaves. Josephine's biological father is unknown. Carrie never definitively said who it was. Some people believe he was a drummer named Eddie Carson, although others, including Josephine's son, believe that her biological father might have been a white man that Carrie MacDonald worked for. Carrie, who worked as a laundress, was unable to support herself and Josephine, so Josephine dropped out of school at age eight to work as a domestic servant for wealthy families. One woman she worked for poured boiling water on her, so she left to work for a couple, but she quit this job too after the man made sexual advances towards her. God, and she's just a kid. Like, this is before she's a teenager. God. Um, She later worked as a waitress. While waitressing, at the age of 13, she met and married a man, Willie Wells. She was 13 years old. Their marriage lasted less than a year, and she left him, determined to make her living as a dancer. I wasn't able to figure out how old he was, whether or not he was a kid as well. Um, But I guess, you know, when you're living in utter poverty, that must seem like an escape. Yeah. In the summer of 1917, when Josephine was a young teenager, she witnessed the East St. Louis race riot. This was a time when many African Americans were moving north for work. At the same time, white workers were striking for better wages and working conditions, and they felt the influx of new workers weaken their strike. With more and more competition for work, the white working class became extremely resentful of African Americans. In May, a group of thousands of white men went to the downtown area and began attacking any black people they saw on the street. The National Guard was called in, and things calmed down for a short time. A few weeks later, two white police officers were killed by black residents who thought they were civilians coming to harass them. In response to this, a white mob again attacked African Americans indiscriminately. And this time, even the National Guard couldn't stop them. Between 40 to 200 people died, almost all African American, and thousands were left homeless by arson. Yeah, the numbers, the uh, numbers of people who died were just very inconsistent. It seemed like the numbers were intentionally minimized. Uh, by authorities, so it's hard to tell what actually happened. This riot made a huge impact on Josephine, and she began looking for a way to free herself from her circumstances. With her dancing skill, she joined a traveling vaudeville dance troupe called the Dixie Steppers. Clara Smith, a blues singer and member of the troupe, was intrigued by Josephine and insisted that the manager hire her. Claire Smith became a mentor of Josephine's, and many in the show believed she was her, quote, lady lover. <laughs> she, that just seems such a um, 1920s thing to say, like, <laughs> turn of the century, oh, you know, they're lady lovers. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, 
She influenced Josephine's future sense of glamour and showmanship. Josephine traveled all over the United States with the Dixie Steppers, where she met a train porter, Willie Baker, who would become her second husband. Their relationship was short-lived, but since she started to become well-known under the name Josephine Baker, Josephine decided to keep it, even after they were officially divorced. She continued traveling with her troupe, and in 1921, she arrived in Harlem, New York. Harlem was a poor area of New York, but in the 1920s, the beginning of the movement was known as the Harlem Renaissance. It was full of culture and energy. It was considered the main hub for new and exciting African-American art. And there are a lot of artists from the Harlem Renaissance that we're going to talk about in our podcast. One in particular that I'm excited about is uh, Langston Hughes. Josephine tried out for a part as a chorus girl in a popular show called Shuffle Along. However, she was denied because casting directors thought her skin was too dark. So she was hired instead as a dresser. However, lucky for Josephine, one of the girls had to drop out, and she knew all the steps and was able to fill in. She became the girl at the end of the chorus line, who traditionally danced in a more comedic way than the rest, sometimes purposely being clumsier than the rest, and sometimes doing more advanced tricks. With her dancing skill, comedic timing, and charisma, Josephine was a huge success in this role, completely stealing the show. She became known as the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville. That's why I think it's really fun to watch the videos, and you can totally see her charisma and just she just is so funny and cute and definitely has a stage presence where she definitely would stand out in a crowd one of the other women who worked with josephine maude russell described relationships between the girls in the show she said quote often we girls would share a boarding house room because of the cost Well, many of us had been kind of abused by producers, directors, leading men, if they liked girls. And the girls needed tenderness, so we had girl friendships, the famous lady lovers. But lesbians weren't well accepted in show business. They were called bulldikers. I guess we were bisexual, is what you would call us today. Which, I guess, for um, for the time period is sort of accepting. Obviously, it's not, uh... Not perfect, but, you know, it's interesting to see the different attitudes back then. Yeah, they existed. Yeah. Yeah, they're just, and the the acceptance of female bisexuality. And she even mentions, like, male, male homosexuality, just, uh, you know, if they even liked girls. Mm-hmm. I just bet in the theater is probably just a more open situation. Josephine's part in Shuffle Along brought her to the attention of her producer, Carolyn Dudley Reagan, also a bisexual woman, who wanted her for a show in Paris. Josephine agreed to go, feeling she had reached as high as she could in the United States. She arrived in Paris in 1925 at age 19, dancing in a show at the Champs-Élysées Theatre. Yeah, neither neither of us took French in school. Did you take French in school, actually? No, not at all. Yeah, I took Chinese, and what did you take? I took Latin. Okay, so, so German. Yeah, yeah, maybe not great for our pronunciation, and we apologize. Josephine was shocked at daily life in Paris, where there was no segregation. 
Her troop and her, all black, stayed in hotels, ate in restaurants, and socialized with white residents. They were treated much better when compared to the United States, but there was an element of exotification in the way they were seen by the French citizens. At the time, colonial France was fascinated with African art. Many of Picasso's paintings featured figures with faces heavily inspired by African masks. So Josephine Baker and her troupe purposely played into and capitalized in some of the exotification for the French public. Yeah, a little bit off topic, but I just remember seeing a lot of paintings of Picasso's where the faces are very geometric and people would be like oh wow it's so crazy that he thought of that on his own like no he painted an african mask like that existed (laughs) (laughs) he didn't make that up (laughs) for her early performances she danced a duet with a very large male dancer highlighting her petiteness the man would carry her on stage over his shoulders naked except for one pink flamingo feather and she would slowly cartwheel down onto the stage where she would begin her dance This show became an instant hit, and she became the star attraction as one of the top sex symbols in Paris. This was a change from her previous role in America, where she was treated as a clown and not particularly attractive. Here, she was considered extremely beautiful, although she continued with her comedic performances as well. Her fans included Picasso, Ernest Hemingway, and future podcast subjects Colette and Gertrude Stein. Colette, a French author, would write glowing and very erotically charged reviews of Josephine's performances, which helped her career. After one review, where Colette described the, quote, admirable convexity of her thighs, her cheeks flushed, the moist and dazzling sweetness of her teeth shows between her dark and violet lips, her pliant body seems to melt. Josephine went to Colette's home with her arms full of flowers to thank her for her article and the publicity that it generated. Um, yeah, that's a very vivid description. So, (laughs) (laughs) Josephine, uh, and Josephine clearly appreciated it. Josephine spent time with many well-known lesbian and bisexual women of the time, like Anna de Noyalis, a poet, Mary Lorenzen, a Cubist painter, and Violet Morris, a famous race car driver and athlete. As her popularity grew, so did her income. She began to live more eccentrically. She had a pet cheetah, which she named Chiquita, which is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Which she would famously take on walks (laughs) through Paris. She also had a pet goat and pet chimpanzee named Ethel. I love the... um how common the name Ethel is for a chimpanzee. Just yeah. Ethel. Yeah. Uh, why go over the top? Yeah, and uh, Chiquita, I think, had a diamond collar, which, you know, if you're going to have a cheetah, why not have a diamond collar? Uh, oh, my God. I think a lot of people might recognize it from uh, the movie. Did you ever see Anastasia? The animated Anastasia? Yeah. There's that scene where they're they're singing and walking around Paris and a lot of famous Parisians come out and... Uh, one of them is Josephine Baker, and she has her banana skirt on, and she's walking Chiquita, her cheetah. And so I think that's probably the first time I ever became aware of her. Yeah, so. I need to see that again. In her early 20s, she began to tour Europe, with her show becoming famous all over the continent. However, she was offered more money for her show back in Paris, Folie Berger. 
so she returned. During this show, she would do the dance routine that would become most iconic, her banana dance. She would, be, she would come on stage wearing a skirt made of bananas, which emphasized the movements of her hips while she danced. The fame from this show would make her one of the most famous women in the world at the time. I actually watched the dance, and it's it's amazing because there's that one point of it that she almost basically twerks. Like yeah, like it's not a new thing at all. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of amazing. And I think it was just so shocking and to people at the time, which made it more exciting and more interesting. And Mm. uh, yeah, definitely there was a lot of like faux exotic elements and a lot of racist things that were being played into. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I don't know what to say about it. (laughs) Uh, During this period, Josephine met a woman named Ada Smith, nicknamed Bricktop. That is a good lesbian nickname. Seriously? (laughs) (laughs) Bricktop, wow. Another black expatriate, she was a nightclub owner that catered to artists, and she took a liking to Josephine. One of Josephine Baker's sons would claim that they had an affair. Bricktop described Josephine saying, I don't think I've ever known anyone with a less complicated view of life or whose life was more complicated than Josephine's. Later, Josephine met a man who called himself Count Pepito Abatino. He was actually a non-noble Italian man, Giuseppe Abatino. Though their relationship was not monogamous, They would be each of each other's primary partners for several years. He became her manager, helped her become a fashion icon, beginning to record music and even star in a couple movies. For example, Princess Tam Tam and Zuzu, making her the first black woman to star in a major motion picture. She also opened her own nightclub, which became a cultural hub. I saw a little bit of Princess Tam Tam, and it's pretty interesting to see because uh, in it she has this romantic uh, relationship with a white man, and I think because of that it was banned in the U.S. and just wasn't played, but it's pretty interesting to see just back then like a uh, interracial relationship depicted on screen, and a lot of her relationships were interracial as well. And it's also weird. I would think um, having a relationship with a man who introduces himself by pretending to be a count, who is like, is it clearly a low-level con man? Uh, I would think that that would be like a really bad decision, but it ended up being a really nice and healthy relationship. (laughs) It's interesting, like they have like a monogamous relationship, like like, back then. Very modern. (laughs) Yeah. In 1936, she was invited back to the United States to perform in a Broadway show, Zeigfeld Follies. After spending a decade in Europe, Josephine was horrified at her treatment in America. One of the dances depicted her dancing romantically with white men, which scandalized the audiences. The show was not a success, and she was only reluctantly allowed to stay in a traditionally white hotel, but only if she used the servant's entrance. During this time, Pepito returned to Paris ahead of her, not telling her that he had been diagnosed with cancer and was very sick. By the time she had left the show and returned to Paris, Pepito had died. 
When she finally left, Josephine was heartbroken. She resolved that she was finished with America. She returned to Paris and was relieved to find her friends and her fans still loved her and were eager for her to continue performing. Soon after, Josephine met another man, Jean Leon. He was a prominent Jewish businessman. They married in 1937 and became a French citizen. However, their marriage was short-lived since he expected her to give up her career, and she refused. She became pregnant, though miscarried, and they divorced soon after. As the 1940s began, so did World War II. And now, as a French citizen living in Paris as the Germans invaded, Josephine found herself in danger. She moved to her second home in southern France, Chateau de Milan. She moved to her second home in southern France, Chateau de Milan, and began working with the French resistance. She used all her resources, from her house to the money that she earned over her career, to fight back against Nazi Germany. She personally worked in counter-espionage. She was a spy, using her celebrity status as an excuse to travel around Europe, bring other resistant workers posing as her band, and speak to high-ranking German, Italian, and Japanese leaders. She would hide information about German troop positions in her music sheets, as well as other documents in her underwear, trusting that she would not be thoroughly searched since she was a celebrity. She's such a badass. (laughs) I know, that's so cool and so dangerous because if she was caught, she would have been killed. She would have been executed. um, And, you know, Matahari, another spy, because she was a spy, ended up actually being executed by... Uh, the French later because they just weren't entirely clear what side she was on. So it's just really nice. um, The patriotism that Josephine Baker showed to her, her, the country she immigrated Mm to really cool. And we have some pictures of her in uniform. She just looks very, very cool. And also like very happy to be helping. In 1941, when France became too dangerous, Josephine left for Casablanca, Morocco. Josephine became very sick there, and some newspapers incorrectly reported that she had died. Some say that the papers published this to protect her. However, she recovered from her sickness and returned to work, this time entertaining soldiers. When she performed for British and American audiences, she insisted that the audience not be segregated. After the end of the war, Josephine was awarded the Cross of War and the Resistance Medal as well as being made an honorary sub-lieutenant in the French Air Force. She was given a uniform which she loved to wear. Oh, I, I don't know why it's hitting me right now, but like I love Josephine Baker so much. She's just so sweet and brave and cool. Really cool. Ugh, okay. Uh, after the war, Josephine returned to France, performing in an orchestra. She became acquainted with a conductor, Joe Boyan, and the two quickly married. He was calm and kind, and they returned to the Chateau de Milande in southern France, where they lived more quietly. She began to transform her home, hoping to turn it into a tourist location. She continued to perform, though more often as a singer than a dancer. Her act was seen as more mature, less salacious, and she was respected as a hero of the French resistance. She was offered a well-paying job in Miami, Florida, in 1951. Remembering her last experience in America, 
and now realizing the influence she could have, she refused unless she could play to integrated audiences. They agreed, and she returned to the United States. With the show being so successful that she went on tour only playing to integrated audiences, which nightclubs and theaters often integrated because of her demands. The NAACP recognized her work, declaring March 20th Josephine Baker Day. It's pretty shocking the hypocrisy that can come from, like imagine a white audience going to see a black singer and not wanting to sit with yeah. black people in the audience. It's ridiculous. And German, German uh, Nazi soldiers wanting to meet Josephine Baker because she's a celebrity, but still committing genocide. Yeah. Racially motivated genocide. Um, it's pretty crazy. While in New York, Josephine Baker visited an exclusive club called the Stork Club. When she ordered the club, never brought her food out. She stormed out, and it's rumored Grace Kelly left with her in solidarity. Josephine later sued the club and publicly reprimanded some of the people she had seen inside for not standing up for her. One of the people she reprimanded was a prominent journalist and former friend, Walter Winchell. He lashed back at her, accusing her of being a communist. This was the height of the Red Scare in McCarthyism. And because of this accusation, Josephine's visa was revoked, and she was not allowed to return to the U.S. for a decade. In 1953, at the age of 47, Josephine took a trip to Japan, hoping to start a family. She returned, having adopted two boys, Akio and Janot. She was so excited to be with her sons that she announced her retirement after a last farewell tour. The tour ended up lasting until 1956, during which she and her husband, Joe Boyan, adopted four more children from different European countries. After the tour, they would adopt three more children from Algeria and the Ivory Coast. In the end, she would have 12 children from many countries, and she would call her family the Rainbow Tribe. Life at the Chateau de Meland was straining Josephine and her husband's marriage. Neither of them were suited for life in the country, and Boulogne, wanted to return to his work as a composer, traveling with his orchestra, earning money to support their now large family, which was causing a strain on their finances. Josephine also missed performing, but now felt it was her duty to stay with her children. The two of them separated, though he continued to help support the children, financially and emotionally. She hoped to earn money by turning her home into a hotel and tourist location. She gave the bedrooms the themes of famous French women, from Madame Pompadour to Madame du Barry, as well as rooms decorated in international styles. There was a J-shaped swimming pool and a wax museum of her childhood. The hotel earned some money, but was not enough to keep up with expenses. I would have definitely stayed here. Like, it sounds <laughs> the wax awesome. I want to see the wax museum of her childhood, which I think a lot of times when she talked about her history, she embellished a little bit. And uh, I'm sure it was maybe like Dollywood style. And I yeah. would love to stay in a hotel like that is inspired by Madame Pompadour. And like, it just, I bet it would be very luxurious. Yeah. 
Although a J-shaped swimming pool doesn't seem like the ideal shape for a swimming pool to be in. Like, you could just do, like, weird it laps. It would yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, It would be a little. Of all... I guess not... I can't think of any letter that would be particularly good. <laughs> um, in 1963, Josephine again returned to the United States, this time for the March on Washington, which we talk about in more detail in our episode on Bayard Rustin. She spoke at the podium, dressed in her French Air Force uniform, and wore her medals... Josephine Baker was touring in the United States when John Kennedy was assassinated, and she sent a message to Joe Boyan, Our world is toppling, affectionately yours. Her health began to decline, and after a series of heart attacks and strokes, she was unable to work for a while, and in 1968, she lost the chateau. She continued to work, playing four sold-out shows at Carnegie Hall in New York, where she was introduced by her old friend, Rick Top. The shows brought her out of her deep financial trouble, though she was not able to buy back her home. For her 50th anniversary of arriving in France as a 19-year-old, she returned to her debut stage to sing a celebration of her life in France. The show was a huge success, sold out for three months ahead. One night after another sold-out performance, Josephine went home and while asleep, had a stroke, and fell into a coma that she never woke from. At the hospital with her when she died were her sister, Count Pepito's niece, and her old friend, Princess Grace Kelly. At her funeral, she was given a a 21-gun salute, making her the only born American to have received one in France. I liked how non-tragic this episode was. She just, she had a good life. Towards the end, she didn't die in poverty. This was an enjoyable one to do. Yeah, like, she's just really cool. She just was extremely successful. Yeah, it's nice to see someone succeed and succeed based on skill and then use that power to make the world a better place. Yeah, and she just lived, like, such an extravagant life, too. Like, that that cheetah and then, like, the wax museum of her childhood. (laughs) Like, she is, like, such a baller. (laughs) (laughs) She would be really fun to hang out with. Probably exhausting, but really fun. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening to the Queer History Podcast. You can find us at Tumblr at thequeerhistorypodcast.tumblr.com. You can find us at Twitter at QueerHistoryPod. And for questions, comments, or to recommend future podcast subjects, you can email us at thequeerhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We would appreciate it if you would rate and review and subscribe on iTunes. Thank you to Liv Slingerland for the intro and outro music.